to Even Darker. I'm so glad you're here. Having always been fascinated by fairy tales, mythical creatures, mythology, folk tales, and legends, I wanted to create a podcast about these exact stories. In each episode, Chris Gordon, Jay Stinnett, or Damian Drake will tell us a story. Then I, Regina Drake, will review the points of the story I found most interesting, shocking, or downright unforgivable. Allow me to show you the origins of things even darker. Take heed, these are in the original early content, not the Big Mouse versions. No shade on him, but this is not for the young. Excited to announce our edition of Mythical Moments of Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Finally, we are going to get a dose of mythology. My favorite. For our 23rd episode, I have chosen to search out the origin of Puss in Boots. The title is Pissavoli Notte, <laughs> or translated, The Pleasant Nights. Comes from Italy. The collector is Giovanni Francesco. Year was published is between 1550 to 1553. And now for our story. Factitious Nights. The fable recounts the plight of three poor boys whose mother, Soriana, has only three possessions of value, a kneading through, a pastry board, and a cat. Knowing that she is soon to die, Soriana gives away her possessions to her sons. The kneading through she gives to the oldest son, Dusolano, the pastry board to the middle son, Testafone, and the cat to the youngest son, Constantino Fortuno. From his name, we can probably guess that his life will end happily, but the tale continues with the cat, a disguised fairy, feeling sorry for Constantino and promising to help him. Constantino, do not be cast down, for I will provide you well-being and sustenance, and for my own as well. The wily cat manages to kill a young hare in its first year and takes it to the king of Bohemia as a gift for Constantino Fortuno. The king is pleased and asks the cat to stay and dine, and the loyal cat takes the food home to Constantino, where his brothers become jealous of his good fortune. The cat continues this ritual of offering the king game until one day he comes up with a plan. He asks Constantino to go to the nearby river and strip off his clothes and get in. Constantino does as the cat asks, when he is in the river, the cats start yelling that his master is drowning. The sly cat knew that the king would be passing close by and would hear the cries for help. The king came to the rescue and invited Constantino back to his palace. 
Thinking that Constantino was rich, he decided that his daughter, Elestada, should marry him. After they were married, Constantino worried that he had no house. The fairy cat managed to take care of all that detail as well. Soon after the king died, Constantino was declared the new king of Bohemia and lived happily ever after with his wife and children. Giovanni Francisco was known as Stra Parola. Murdered that. But the word means babbler. He collected 75 folkloristic, which is a new word to me, tales which filled two volumes. Giovanni is shrouded in mystery. There are disputes as to the year he was born, and as yet, no one has been able to shed any light on the circumstances of his life, which seems really strange due to the fact that he was so widely read and appreciated in his time. I've always loved the story of Puss, yet I have to admit I wasn't aware of the original version. The cat is a fairy? The king of Bohemia. Nice. Fun fact. The story uses the word leveret, which is a young hare, rabbit, in its first year. I need help with Italian, and I need help with the research on this because it became very muddled. No wonder no one has been able to shed light because I even found from my sources, the research on him is not consistent on Giovanni. We know that Strapoli means babbler. And in one, in one source, his book was named Fastidious Nights of Strapola, which, as I understand it, and we know I speak Italian and understand it, bravissimo, right, that would say to me is the title of the book was called The Pleasant Nights of Blabber. <laughs> Not since the Stinky Cheese Man have we had such a great title. Something must be being lost in translation. Also, what was different in this version that Damien just read us is it's a mother that's dividing up her few possessions between her three sons. There is also a book written by Gian Battista Basile. Uh, we've mentioned his works before. It's the book called The Tale of Tales, published in Naples between 1634 and 1636 in the Neapolitan dialect. I wish to share with you Basile's end to his version of Puss in Boots. The mother becomes a father. The main character's name changes that of Caglioso. And the cat is referred to as her royal catness. The story follows essentially the same plot as Trapolona versions, but it varies in small details. More importantly, the characters are rougher and ruder and perhaps more meaner. An example is when Casilago attends the banquet given by the king he constantly worries about the rags that he had to take off after being in the river and the water. He says to the cat, My little kitty, keep an eye on those rags of mine for me. I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to them. And the cat answers, Be quiet. Shut your trap. 
Don't talk like that about such trifles. Obviously, Caglioso was not as smart as the cat and would not and would ruin the plan. Caglioso thanks the cat many times for his good fortunes and promised that when she died, he would have her stuffed and put into a golden cage in his bedroom. The cat, not completely trusting of Caglioso, promises three days later pretended to be dead. When Caglioso found the cat dead, he proclaimed, Better her than us, and may every evil accompany her. When his wife asked what she should do with her body, Caglioso answered, Take her by the foot and throw her out the window. The cat, hearing this, revives and runs away only after chasing Caglioso. The moral that summarizes the story is, May God save you from the rich who become poor and from the beggar who has worked his way up. Cagluso. Is that how you pronounce it? What a schmuck. Why? Why? If you're not going to do it, why even promise? Stuff puss and put her in a golden cage in his bedroom. I mean, who thinks of this? The French version is by Charles Perrault. He lived from 1628 to 1703 and was best known for Tales of Mother Goose. His version of Puss in Boots is the version that people are probably most familiar with. I mean, it's Mother Goose, for God's sake. Puss was always French in the stories I knew. In Charles' version, it's asserted the moral or lesson seems to hinge on the benefit of lying and being wealthy. Along with proper clothes, all doors will open, even for a cat. A cat can even win the trust of a king. But let's go to the source. Written at the end of his book, it says, good looks and good manners and some aid from dress are really the key to success. Now I'm rhyming. <laughs> that is definitely a far cry from the earlier version that we heard read to us. Oh, and also the Grimm brothers included Puss in Boots in their Children and Household Tales. Wow, such a German title. Clean and precise. Probably has a how to clean your house manual attached. Also, in that muddled research I referred to, it was said that the Grimm's accused one of the authors of plagiarism. I believe they, they thought that the French version was the original, and they accused Basile of um, plagiarism. But wait, there's more. In the region of Gordian, there was a certain noble soldier who had a fair but vicious wife. It happened that her husband had occasion to travel. The lady sent for her gallant, now one of her handmaidens, it seems, was skillful in interpreting the song of birds, and in the court of the castle there were three cocks, 
During the night, while the gallant was with his mistress, the first cock began to crow. The lady heard it and said to her servant, Dear friend, what says yonder cock? She replied, That you are grossly injuring your husband. Then, said the lady, Kill that cock without delay. They did so, but soon after, the second cock crew, and the lady repeated her question. Madam, said the handmaiden, he says, My companion died for revealing the truth, and for that same cause I am prepared to die. Kill him, cried the lady, which they did. After this, the third cock crew. What says he? asked she again. Here, see, and say nothing, if you would live in peace. Oh, oh, said the lady, don't kill him, and her orders were obeyed. Lesson, my beloved, the emperor is God, the soldier, Christ, and the wife, the soul. The gallant is the devil, the handmaiden is the conscience, the first cock is our savior, who was put to death, the second is the martyrs, and the third is a preacher who ought to be the earnest in declaring the truth, but being deterred by menaces is afraid to utter it. This comes from Justa Roman Orium, or Deeds of the Romans, dated 1473. This story stopped me, or should I say the lesson or application, blew my mind. Take note, I made a jump to stories about animals helping or hindering us. As promised, now for even darker. Vitalis and the Woodcutter About this time, 1195 AD, a remarkable circumstance happened to a rich and miserly Venetian, which we think is worthwhile to insert. His name was Vitalis, and when he was on point of giving his daughter in marriage, he went into the large forest near the sea to provide delicacies for the table. As he wandered alone through the forest with his bow and arrow ready for intent on taking vision, he suddenly fell into a pitfall, which had been cunningly set for the lions and bears and wolves, out of which he found it impossible to escape because of the bottom was so wide and the mouth so narrow. Here he found two fierce animals, a lion and a serpent, which had also by accident fallen in, and Vitalis signing himself with a cross, neither of them, though fiercely and hungrily, ventured to attack him. All that night he spent in the pit, crying and moaning, and expecting with laminations the approach of death. A poor woodcutter passing by chance that way to collect faggots, heard his cries, which seemed to come from beneath the ground, and following the sound until he came into the pit's mouth, he looked and called out, Who's in there? Vitalis sprang up, rejoiced beyond measure, and eagerly replied, It is I, Vitalis, a Venetian, who, knowing nothing of these pitfalls, fell in, and shall be devoured by wild beast. Besides, which I am dying of hunger and terror. There are two fierce animals here, a lion and a serpent, but, by God's protection and the sign of the cross, they have not yet hurt me, and it remains for you to save me, 
that I may afterwards show you my gratitude if you will save me. I will give you half of my property, namely 500 talents, for I am worth a thousand. The poor man answered, I will do as you request if you will be as good as your word. Upon this, Vitalis pledged his oath and to do as he promised. While they were speaking, the lion, by bland movement of his tail, and the serpent, by gentle hissing, signified to the poor man the appropriation and seemed to join in Vitalis's request to be delivered. The poor man immediately went home for a ladder and ropes, with which he returned and let the ladder down into the pit, without any help to him. Immediately the lion and serpent, striving which should be first, mounted by the rounds of the ladder and gave thanks to the poor man, crouching at his feet for their deliverance. The woodcutter, approaching Vitalis, kissed his hand, saying, Long live this land. I am glad to say that I have earned my bargain. And with these words, he conducted Vitalis until they came to a road which he was familiar with. When they parted, the poor man asked when and where Vitalis would discharge his promise. Within four days, said Vitalis, in Venice, in my palace, which is well known and easy to find. The countryman returned home to his dinner, and as he was sitting at the table, the lion entered with a dead goat and a present in return for his deliverance, and having laid it down, took his leave without doing any harm. The countryman, however, wishing to see where a tame animal lay, followed him to his den, and the lion all the time licking his feet, and then came back to his dinner. The serpent now came also, and brought him in his mouth a precious stone, which he laid at the countryman's plate. The same proceedings again took place as before. After two or three days, the rustic carrying the jewel with him went to Venice to claim from Vitalin his promise. He found him feasting with his neighbors in joy for his deliverance and said to them, Friend, pay me what you owe me. Who art thou, replied Vitalis, and what dost thou want? I want the five thousand talents you had promised me. Do you expect, replied Vitalis, to get it so easily, which I have done so hard to amass my fortune, and ordered the servants to cast him into prison. But the rustic, by a sudden spring, escaped out of the house and told what had happened to the judges of the city. When, however, they were little incredulous, he showed them the jewel which the serpent had given him, and immediately one of them, perceiving that it was of great value, bought it of the man at a high price. But the countryman further proved the truth of his words by conducting some of the citizens to the dens of the lion and of the serpent. When the animals again fawned on him as the judges were thus convinced of the truth and compelled Vitalis to fulfill his promise which he had given and to make compensation for the injury which he had done to the poor man. Vitalis, wasn't that a hair product? In the 60s or the 70s for men? I just had to include this story. It is attributed to Richard the Lionheart. He lived between 1157 and 1199. This story was told by King Richard to expose the conduct of ungrateful men. I bet it was hard to stay grateful while fighting in the Crusades. Talk about even darker. Mm -hmm. 
And now for our weekly installment of Pinocchio. Pinocchio, Chapter 18 Crying as if his heart would break, the marionette mourned for hours over the length of his nose. No matter how he tried, it would not go through the door. The fairy showed him no pity, as she was trying to teach him a good lesson so that he would stop telling lies, the worst habit any boy may acquire. But when she saw him, pale with fright, and with his eyes half out of his head from terror, she began to feel sorry for him and clapped her hands together. A thousand woodpeckers flew in through the window and settled themselves on Pinocchio's nose. They pecked and pecked so hard at the enormous nose that in a few moments it was the same size as before. His eyes filled with tears, and he said, Oh, dear fairy, I love you. I love you too, answered the fairy, and if you wish to stay with me, you may be my little brother and I'll be your good little sister. I should like to stay, but what about my poor father? I've already thought of everything. Your father has been sent for, and he will be here before the night is over. Really? cried Pinocchio joyfully. Then, my good fairy, if you're willing, I should like to go meet him. I cannot wait to kiss that dear old man who has suffered so much for my sake. Surely. Go ahead, but be careful not to lose your way. Take the wood path and you will surely meet him. Pinocchio set out, and as soon as he found himself in the wood, he ran like a hare. And then he reached a giant oak tree he stopped, for he thought he heard a rustle in the bush. And he was right. There stood the fox and the cat, the two traveling companions with whom he had eaten at the end of the red lobster. Here comes our dear Pinocchio, cried the fox, hugging and kissing him. How did you happen here? How did you happen here? repeated the cat. It's a long story, said the marionette. Let me tell it to you. The other night when you left me alone at the inn, I met the assassins on the road. (gasps) The assassins. Oh, my poor friend. What did they want? They wanted my gold pieces. Rascals, said the fox. Where's the rascals, said the cat. But I began to run, continued the marionette, and they ran after me until they overtook me and hanged me up to the limb of that oak. Pinocchio pointed to the giant oak tree nearby. Could anything be worse, said the fox. Ah, what an awful world we live in. Where shall we find a safe place for gentlemen like ourselves? As the fox talked thus, Pinocchio noticed that the cat carried his right paw in a sling. What happened to your paw? he asked. The cat tried to answer, but became so terribly twisted in his speech that the fox had to help him out. My friend is too modest to answer. I'll answer for him. About an hour ago, we met an old wolf in the road. He was half starved and begged for help. Having nothing to give him, what do you think my friend did out of the goodness of his heart? With his teeth, he bit off the paw of his front foot and threw it at the poor beast so that he might have something to eat. As he spoke, the fox wiped away her tear. Pinocchio, almost in tears himself, whispered in the cat's ear, If all cats were like you, how lucky mice would be. And what are you doing here? The fox asked the marionette. I'm waiting for my father, who will be here any moment. 
and your gold pieces? I still have them in my pocket, except for the one that I spent at the end of the Red Lobster. To think those four gold pieces might become 2,000 tomorrow. Why don't you listen to me? Why don't you, why don't you come to the Field of Wonders? Today it's impossible. I'll go with you some other time. Another day. It may be too late, said the fox. Why? Because the field has been bought by a very rich man. And today is the last day that they will be open to the public. How far is the field of wonders? Only two miles away. Will you come with us? We'll be there in a half an hour. You can sow the money, and after a few minutes, you'll gather the 2,000 coins and return to home rich. Are you coming? Pinocchio hesitated a moment before answering, for he remembered the good fairy, old Geppetto, and the advice of the talking cricket. Then he ended by doing what all boys do when they have no heart and a little brain. He shrugged his shoulders and said to the cat and the fox, Let's go, I'm with you. And they went. They walked and walked for half a day at least, and at last they came to the town called the City of the Simple Simons. As soon as they entered the town, Pinocchio noticed that all the streets were filled with hairless dogs yawning from hunger, with sheared sheep trembling with cold, with combless chickens begging for a grain of wheat, with large butterflies unable to use their wings because they had sold all their lovely colors, the tailless peacocks ashamed to show themselves, and the bedraggled pheasants scuttling away hurriedly, grieving for their bright feathers of gold and silver, lost to them forever. Through this crowd of paupers and beggars, a beautiful coach pressed now and again. Within it sat a fox and a hawk and a vulture, where is the field of wonders? asked Pinocchio, growing tired of waiting. Be patient. It's only a few steps away. They passed through the city and outside the walls. They stepped into a lonely field, which more or less looked like any other field. Here we are, said the fox to the marionette. Dig a hole and put the gold pieces into it. The marionette obeyed. He dug the hole, put the four gold pieces in, and then covered them up very carefully. Now, said the fox, go to the nearby brook, bring back a pail full of water, and sprinkle it over the spot. Pinocchio followed the directions closely, but as he had no pail, he pulled off his shoe, filled it with water, and sprinkled it on the earth which covered the gold. Then he asked, anything else? Nothing else, said the fox. Now we can go. Return here within 20 minutes and you will find a vine and branches filled with gold pieces. Pinocchio, beside himself with joy, thanked the fox and the cat many times, promised to give them each a beautiful gift. We don't want your gifts, answered the two rogues. It's enough for us to have helped you to become rich with little or no trouble. For this we are happy as kings. And they said goodbye to Pinocchio, and wishing him good luck, went on their way. Okay. Chapter 18. Let me ask you this. Is the removal of the punishment worse than the punishment itself? Woodpeckers, that's how we're going to shorten his nose. Oh, my God. And the fairy will be his sister, his little sister. Boy, she is not what I'm imagining, I guess. 
forget the dinner at the Red Lobster. The assassins are back. Fox and Cat. I love saying that word. Assassins. Probably bad on the S's, though. And what about Simple Simon Street? Wow. Was that just depressing as all get out? I mean, that's the stuff of nightmares. Pinocchio really disturbed me as a child, the Big Mouse version. So this is right up there. I mean, those animals running around without their fur and their feathers. Oof. Oh, and so you only have four gold coins left. Let's get in a Ponzi scheme, yeah? Now for our new segment, Mythical Moments in Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Camazults name literally means death pat in the Kahiche language. The Kahiche, a Mayan people, 950 to 1539 AD, are the original inhabitants of the Guatemalan highlands, where their lush culture flourished long before the age of Spanish conquest. Scholars believed they fused the dangerous cave-dwelling bat deity with that of their fire god in order to create the truly terrifying Camazults, who served the lords of the underworld. A cult following for the creature began amongst the Zabatec Indians of Oaxaca, Mexico, which was later adopted into the pantheon of the Maya Quiche tribe. The legends of the bat gods, traditions, and further history of the Quiche were later mentioned in a Mayan manuscript in 1550 AD called the Paupalvu, Book of the People. The Paupalvu is of particular importance given the scarcity of early accounts dealing with Mesoamerican mythologies and was phonetically translated into Spanish by a friar, Francisco Jimenez, in 1701 AD. His work was published in 1714. After the Spanish conquest, missionaries and colonists destroyed many documents concerning anything related to Maya culture. The bat god Camazaltz is linked to death. Most scholars believe that Camazaltz was inspired by the common vampire bat, but others suggest it was based on a 25% larger giant vampire bat that probably went extinct around 11,700 years ago during the Pleistocene or early Holocene periods. Due to the size of these bats, it's believed it feasted on larger sized animals and humans, killing them around the neck. Fossils and teeth have been found as late as the 1970s in what is now known as the Yucatan, Belize, northern Brazil, Argentina, and Venezuela. The Camazaltz is described as having a roughly cream-colored humanoid body about 8 feet tall, the head of a bat, large bat-like wings covered in long, sharp spikes, jaws filled with dozens of jagged, dagger-like teeth, and a nose that resembles a flint knife. The monster was said to attack victims by the neck and decapitate them. In the Paupalvu, it is recorded that this creature had a purposeful run-in with the Maya demigod hero twins Hanapu and Shabalanke. As the story goes, the twins had been invited down to the underworld, a shadowy place known as Zebalba. Like the heroes of countless other epic tales, the twins spent most of their journey in the caves of the underworld being forced to contend with a huge number of trials and obstacles. 
Well, things were going pretty well until the lords of Zebelba challenged the twins to spend the night in Zotzilaha, the underworld's sinister residential house of bats. The twins were pretty cunning and decided that they would outsmart their challengers by shrinking themselves into their blowguns for the night. As they lay there using their blowguns like protective blankets, the bats in the damp cave eventually began to calm down until ultimately all was silent. It was then that Shabalake got a not-so-bright idea. Hey, Hanapu, Shabalake said, maybe it's dawn. Check it out and see if all the bats have left. For whatever reason, Hanapu agreed to the plan and stuck his head out of his blowgun to check for the all-clear. Unfortunately, this was just the opportunity Kamazaltz had been waiting for. The bat god wasted no time in swooping down, decapitating Hanapu, and hanging up his head to be used as a ball in the god's next game. In another part of the Pal Palvu, Kamazaltz makes an appearance in the form of a man with bat wings. This time, he acts as a messenger from Zebelba, who arrives to broker a deal between humanity and Lord Toil, the patron god of the Kahiche. Humanity has decided that it desperately wants fire. In the end, mankind promised their armpits and waste to the god in exchange for their wish. Humanity's trade-off is actually a reference to human sacrifice, during which the chest was opened from armpits to the waist. Kamazot's grisly reputation even extended to a legend in which he was one of the four animal demons responsible for wiping out mankind during the age of the first sun. The end. Okay, listener. Go Goog Batmask JPEG image ancient-origins.net Go, go, I'll wait. You've got to see it. It's Batman. Oh, I have questions. Fossils and teeth have been found. Whose teeth? Sacrificed women? Or bat teeth? I asked Karen and she isn't sure. Hero Twins. I wonder what their story is. And please, can someone tell me who was mankind's deal broker? Who went and promised our armpits and waists? How about toenail clippings? No, give them the armpits. Oh, let's not forget what Karen ended with. He was one of four animal demons responsible for wiping out mankind during the age of the first sun? Did anyone, age of the first sun, how many suns have we had? And does this mean we have or will have ages without sun? Hope you enjoyed this episode of Even Darker. Please review and follow us. If you'd like to support us, do it. I'd love to hear your feedback, so leave a voice message if you are so inclined. I want to thank two of my most favorite men on this planet, Damian Drake and Jay Stinnett, for being our storytellers. And give an even darker welcome to Karen Ellinger. 
Even Darker is made with Anchor and can be found on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast platforms.